0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. So hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Simon Glenister, who is Director of Noise Solution, which is a social enterprise based in Barry, St Edmunds, and it provides one-to-one music mentoring programmes using music technology for young people in challenging circumstances. Why I thought you'd be interested in this is for a number of reasons, really. Firstly, the business model is unusual for the music education and wellbeing sector noise solution isn't a charity it's never fundraised or received music or education funding all of its income comes from commissioning secondly their practice is also unique in that digital storytelling is a central part of both the evaluation and the success of the program and then i think thirdly they've developed a really robust evaluation model that's proving that their model really works and they've also won stacks of awards and big commissions from the public sector. So welcome Simon and thank you for agreeing to chat today. It's really great to be talking to you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be
0: here. (laughs) Great. So before we get into talking about Noise Solution, can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up doing what you do today and why it's so important to you personally?
1: Uh, Yeah, of course. Um, So my background is, I think, maybe slightly unusual for the sector in that I came into working with young people, uh, not from a musical education perspective. Uh, I started off uh, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, working for a youth offending team or volunteering for a youth offending team in East London. And that led to a career of of working with young people across a wide variety of, of challenging circumstances. So it was very local authority based, but it was also all predominantly one-to-one work solving problems for those young people around housing, addiction, uh, education. So that side of it was was, was maybe not the normal route to sort of traditional community music work. Uh, But at the same time, musically, um, I've been very fortunate and I've been a, a professional musician since I was 18. Uh, When I moved to London to to join a band with a record deal, and I've been really lucky in in that respect as well and and had multiple record deals and travelled all around the world and had a lot of fun uh, doing that work. Uh, Major festival appearances and albums and all the things you dream about as a kid when you want to be in bands. I've I've been lucky enough to do all that. And uh, yeah, so Noise Solution was kind of a culmination of those two worlds.
0: And that's brilliant for the young people you work with, isn't it, that you've got youth work experience and all this industry experience. So that authenticity of what you do, Mm -hmm. um, you know, really comes through the whole business model, really, and the way you work with young people. So moving on to your organisation, can you tell me what it is you do and why it works? Those are two really big questions. So I'll come back to the why it works, perhaps. Um,
1: I think they're inextricably linked, actually. So what's developed is a a one to one mentoring programme that is a mixture of music technology uh, and these digital stories that i'll talk a bit more about but it's an approach that as you mentioned has been independently proven to be highly statistically significant in impacting on on the well-being we tend to work with young people who are referred to us from statutory services like mental health education social services youth justice they tend to be the young people uh, that those services are really really struggling to engage with So we pair them with a music producer, uh, somebody generally with music tech skills, but also instrumental skills as well. And we work with them for two hours a week, over 10 weeks in the community. We go to where that young person is initially to establish a a relationship that might be in the home, that might be at a local centre. And we create a space where that kid can feel they're successful at something quickly and something that they are already interested in. We do music with the kids, not at kids. We start from the position of us and what they want to do. I think what we do, which is slightly different, is that it's it doesn't just end there as a, a mentoring program where something good happens in a room somewhere else. Uh, what we've also done is to build our own bespoke social media platform that captures the successes that happen the highlights of the good things that happen in in those sessions as the young person realizes that they can throw some beats together or create a piece of music that's theirs that that is aligned with the music they're interested in listening to themselves Uh, so those successes are captured and they're captured via photos they're captured via video reflection of how the young person feels about it and then this platform that reflects people's everyday social media experiences it, it presents as if it were a facebook platform or a Tumblr platform or whatever it might be at the end of each session, after the musician and the participant have built their their narrative for how that, that session 's gone, a link goes out to whoever that young person identifies as important in their life, so that might be parent carer, fostering carer, uh, youth offending worker, mental health worker, head of school, whoever they, they feel is important in their lives so what we 're doing is capturing the young person being successful often against a backdrop where people's reactions to that young person are are so often focused on the deficits of what's going on in their life and the problems. Create a space where they're actually good at something, project that outwards to the people that are important in their lives. Um, And then because it presents in a social media format, the people that are important in their lives are able to comment and interact with that positive narrative as well. And I'll talk a a bit about why we think that works in a minute, but the the nub of it is, it's, it's making somebody feel good at something, quickly capturing it and sharing it with people that are important to that person you're working with.
0: That's brilliant. I love the idea of bringing digital storytelling into this um, because then those young people kind of own the way that their story is told and their work is evaluated or your work is evaluated. So that's really empowering, isn't it?
1: I think it's a genuine case of user voice absolutely being at the centre. So it's the young person's story told by them with the co-production of their, wh- whoever the significant people are around them.
0: And do you ever get any resistance from young people? I mean how do you introduce that digital storytelling to them?
1: It's interesting, um, we do, but I think before we talk about that I think I want to talk about why it works because that, okay. that, that, that actually plays into that question specifically. So all of this work is predicated on a theoretical understanding of how we impact on well-being. It, it's it's about being able to intentionally improve well-being and we do that uh, or noise solution does that through basing its work on something called self-determination theory which is a, a theory developed by uh, a couple of psychologists called dc and ryan uh, yes.
0: american, um, uh,
1: american psychologists and they 10 years ago they started with the question how do we impact on intrinsic motivation how people feel about themselves because we know if we do that any choices that they make are likely to be more sustainable so basically it's coming at it from the opposite end of the spectrum from carrot and stick approaches where you're trying to control behavior Um, it's trying to create create a space where the young person is making their own decisions because they want to Um, my background in youth offending and other local authority organizations showed me quite clearly there was lots of wonderful work but there was also a lot of work that wasn't so great and it comes back to this deficit focus that is so often there when a young person's behaviors start throwing up flags what happens is as a subtext nobody's doing this intentionally but the subtext is often that a professional will come into that young person's life and say well you're rubbish at this and you're not doing that properly and i'm the expert and you need to listen to me and if you do what i say we can fix you <laughs> yeah. and that's not great uh, it's certainly not great in terms of engagement And you're often focusing on the deficits, the problems of whatever's going on in that young person's life. And by focusing on them, you're often amplifying them as well. So what DC and Ryan are saying is that if you want to impact on that sense of intrinsic motivation, well-being is absolutely at the core of that. Well-being is a very misunderstood, misused word, I think, across the whole third sector. People tend to use it like currency, uh, you know, slapping it on applications for grants. Um, and it's used as a general term, whereas we actually have quite a good understanding of, of what constitutes well-being academically, theoretically. People do, do the research to find this stuff out. It's really, really helpful as a lens with which to look at how we work and, and, and or why what we do works and, and how we best intentionally impact on wellbeing. So what they're saying is, if you want to do that, there are three psychological needs that need to be addressed. The first one is creating a sense of the, the person you're working with being in control of what they're doing, a sense of autonomy is the, is the word they use. So that reaction that we often see within local authority, uh, statutory education services is that when that kid's behavior start throwing up flags, what we do as a knee jerk reaction is to take their autonomy away. Yeah. That, that happens almost across the board where we actually need to be doing the opposite and giving them a space where they actually feel in control of what's going on around them so at that point you were saying around whether they want to engage with the digital narrative or not we ask them
0: <laughs> yeah. do you
1: want to <laughs> and, and if they do fantastic and if they don't also fantastic um, what tends to actually happen is that, that young people start off being fairly suspicious of it yeah um a few of them not all of them lots of people just jump straight in and they love it because it, you know they're used to it uh, but some are slightly suspicious but as they you create a space where they feel more competent being good at something then they're more ready to capture that and share that and it tends to grow it, it, it's often quite a linear curve of not engaging fully and then really really engaging with it as the process goes on so coming back to those psychological needs that DC and Ryan identified autonomy is the first of three the second one is a sense of competency feeling that we are good at something so for noise solution if we look at how we map this onto what we're doing that's about making the kid feel good about creating whatever the music they want to make really really quickly and for us music technology is absolutely key to that we can use music technology to create really quick wins where uh, quick wins that are culturally responsive if you ask the child because you're interested in in their sense of autonomy what do you want to make and they say i want to make hip-hop or i want to make grime or from a bass, whatever it might be, we can very, very quickly use music technology to just to grab some loops together and, and throw something that sounds authentic like the stuff they 're listening to that they feel they 've invested in that they 've created really really quickly you 're sidestepping all of those issues around the more traditional approaches to, to music education around notation and musical theory and, and creating a space where the kid 's good at something quickly so those are the, the, the first two elements and, and also coming back to that competency point. You know, I've spent 10 years developing ways of creating spaces where, where a young person feels good at something quickly. So one of the other things we do, for instance, which I think is really interesting, is we have a technique for teaching the piano uh, that uses shapes rather than notation and scales, and we can teach 48 chords in about 25 minutes, mm. half an hour. And you're taking something that societally is perceived as being very, very complex that only clever kids do because, I think, of the way our music education system is set up, with this focus on one specific way of creating music. I'm not making a judgment about one being better or the other. Uh, I'm just saying that tends to be the way our music education system is set up. And if you can make a kid who's been outside of the education system for a couple of years, just come out of jail or just come out of a mental health acute situation, uh, and you say, I'm going to teach you to play the piano in half an hour, and their perception is that that's not something that's possible, and you create a space where they do that, really really quickly that's a really really great way to engender trust which is another really really important element of the work that we do um, engaging people and and getting into a situation where they trust the person that they're working with Um, so those quick wins are really really important so that's all about the competency piece so the autonomy piece is about what do you want to do and how do you want to do it um, and the competency piece is about making them good at, at, at creating the music that they want to create the third psychological need that DC and Ryan identify is relatedness, which is, you know, a sense of connectedness to, to other people, how we function in circles around us. And that for us is where the digital story steps in, because lots of the people we work with are very marginalized, isolated, outside of mainstream education, uh, struggling with anxiety or depression or, or any number of issues. So the, the digital story allows us to create a space where that young person is proud of what they're doing and it enables us for them for them to tell their story and connect with the people important in their life to demonstrate that they're being good at something and and, and create that sense of relatedness with those people around something that's positive based rather than deficit based.
0: That's amazing because they form that people that are around them that have seen all those that negativity see a different person there but also they probably see the youth workers or support workers in a different way as well because of different types of feedback that they're getting.
1: I did did nine hours of uh, thematically analysed interviews with participants and their professional key workers and their family and the one thing that stood out the most was a conversation I had with a mum who said you're only ever as happy as your saddest child Which is which is so obvious, and I may have cried Uh (laughs) at that point. But if you think about that, what's actually happening there? If 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 we go back to that often deficit-focused approach, your all the messaging around that young person is about problems, yeah, which informs all the conversations that happen around that that person as well both at home and professionally if you create a space where you you're demonstrating that this kid has potential is is doing really interesting great things especially things around the piano thing as i say coming back to this idea that most people perceive it to be really complicated So if you're creating that narrative that is because of the ability of social media to reach into people's homes and the the empathetic power of video to connect with people. If this kid's coming in and and he starts talking about how it feels to suddenly be able to play the piano or the, the banging drum and bass track that he's just made that he's really, really proud of or she's proud of, and the parents are seeing that, that absolutely changes the dynamic of the conversations allowing a bridge in around a positive focus. And yeah, the ripples that that occasion um, are a very, very significant part of the work.
0: And that's quite striking that you've got a way to involve the family in that way, talking not only with the young person, but also with the professionals. It's like the team around the child thing that used to be part of this type of work. And in the music education and community music, we, we kind of often say, oh, you know, if only we had a connection with the family, And it's a case of grabbing people at the beginning or the end of a session sometimes, and even that isn't possible. So this just makes it so possible, doesn't it?
1: It it does that, but it it serves so many other purposes as well. Um, So again, from a theoretical perspective, from the research that I've done, what we believe is also going on is you're creating and recording this place where the young person's being successful at something. Um, what that means is you are literally extracting that from their head and, and creating an externalised record of them being good that they can see. You're, uh, right, scaffolding, yeah. you're, you're scaffolding their ability to process the fact that they are being good at something. A lot of these young people uh, have assimilated masses of the negative labels that they've either attributed to themselves or other people have attributed to them. If you create a space or or scaffold their ability to to process an experience or a set of experiences where they are being successful and good at something, that starts to challenge those labels because they can see it. If you then reinforce those messages with positive commentary from the people that autonomously they've decided to share with, the people important in their life who are saying, that's amazing you've done this, or I really enjoyed this track that you made, or isn't it fantastic that you've learned to play the piano like that so quickly, that reinforces that messaging as well. And you start to, you can almost see often the process uh, of the person internalising that shift, that change in their perception of themselves.
0: And they get to choose the people that see that, do they?
1: They have complete autonomy over what's captured, who it's shared with, they can change that at any point. You know, if they want to remove somebody from the group that they share with, it's not, I I need to stress, it's not a social media platform in the traditional sense. It's a a social media platform specifically designed to work with young people in challenging circumstances, their family and their key workers. We invite people in, in a targeted group to, to be part of that young person's feed or digital story but they can choose who's added to it or who's removed from it at any point or what's on that blog or to not engage with it that overriding lens of autonomy and competency and relatedness that that element of autonomy being able to choose is absolutely fundamental and overrides everything
0: and the technical question is a it's a kind of private tumblr blog or something like that is that right
1: Uh, no it's a platform we've built ourselves
0: oh wow. Um,
1: So we've invested considerable sums in building this platform. So it's taking, when I first started, I was using open source platforms like Tumblr. The work hasn't changed, but in the last two years, we've invested all the research work that I've done and uh, significant amounts of money from the the social enterprise sector form of grants to build this platform that performs this function for us it performs a whole host of other functions as well which i think we're going to talk about in a minute all the statistical analysis of the, the nationally benchmarkable well-being metrics all of that work is hosted within the platform as well but the digital stories for everyone we create are also an integral part of that platform as well
0: okay so i just wanted to Go back to this thing about you were saying about using music technology and also yeah. using a, a kind of really quick way of young people being able to master playing the piano. Yeah. So, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about the kind of choices you give young people in terms of the music they can make.
1: Normally, we'll meet a young person. I've got, it's not just me delivering this, I've got 15 musicians over, over the whole of the East of England delivering this work at the moment. And what the, the, the first conversation has to be. What do you want to create? What do you like listening to yeah would you would you like to make that? What are your interests and it 's been really surprising what the answer to those questions are Yes, we do a lot of hip hop and grime and drill drum, drum bass dubstep whatever, but we also you know occasionally you 'll work with a young person and you 'll have some kind of preconception about what they 're probably going to say and they 'll but they 'll really surprise you um, so I had I mentioned this example quite a lot. I had one lad who was really into um, brony music. I don't know if you come across brony music. Have I had that conversation with you?
0: No. Uh, Brothers,
1: <laughs> Brothers of My Little Pony. No. no. <laughs>
0: oh my God. Okay. Yeah, really
1: interesting. It's, it's, fascin- it's fascinating. Uh, so they tend to be, and I don't want to generalize too much, young men on, often on the autistic spectrum. I mean, it seems to be a sort of form of uh, continuation on from things like Thomas the Tank Engine. But a more sort of teenage version with, with a sense of irony thrown in. And it, it seems to be being used within that community, that sort of youth, almost subgenre, genre as, as a moral roadmap, because everything's very clear about what's right and wrong. That oh. seems to be what's, what's going on with it. But the music is predominantly sort of American pop-punk stuff, but about unicorns. But just as an example, though, so that young man uh, wasn't coming out of his bedroom at all, uh, wasn't engaging and hadn't been for months and months and months. And we engaged him through first connecting with him through the digital platform before we'd even met him showing him some of the some of some videos of some of the stuff we were doing around music tech at that time we were quite interested in music sensors and and using movement sensors to create music as another quick bridge to to creating stuff so i sent him some videos about that stuff that we were doing and that piqued his interest because he was quite techie as well and then he told us about the brony stuff and then we started giving him production knowledge around creating or recording using the software which he then used to create podcasts and radio broadcasts for brony organizations all over the world.
0: Amazing.
1: Uh, But within three or four weeks, he was coming out to a recording studio and he he did a, a level one qualification, then a level two qualification, and we, we see that transformative stuff happen all the time. It doesn't happen for everybody. I, I, I don't want to say that this is the one and only way uh, to, to work with kids. It obviously isn't. This is just, to paraphrase a, a colleague of mine, it's a way, not the way.
0: So picking up on that, music tech is obviously the, the kind of main tool you use. Music tech isn't just one instrument, is it? You know, I think often people don't realise that music tech opens up a whole world of music and genres and instruments. But just one Wanted to give you the opportunity to sort of talk about why music tech is important and why, although you're saying about um, mastery and fast mastery, why also music tech is important as a quality method of making music.
1: Yeah, I struggle to understand why people have issues with with music technology. I know they do, but anyone who, who who's saying that in some form or way suspicious of music technology has almost every part of their their, their musical experience has been touched by music technology. It's an integral part of our lives. Um, it, it's fundamental uh, and it's not given the, the, the credence that it, that it should be given. When we talk about music technology, we're not often within music education context. Music technology is, is, is often talked about as something that improves accessibility. Uh, but that, that's not really where we're coming at it from we're talking about using the tools that are used in in recording studios but are equally used by kids in their bedrooms up and down the country constantly. The, the, the recent youth music report about the, the sort of plummeting uptake for, for, for music within schools equally balances that with, with, it, with the huge uptake of music technology uh, by young people, self-directed, the move towards self-directed learning, that the access that YouTube gives these young people is phenomenal. Uh, we ha- literally have the world's experts at our fingertips. All these young people do. What, what we fail often, I think, to teach is the critical skills to evaluate what's placed in front of them. But music technology it runs through our whole lives. Uh, the thing that really makes it work for me is the cultural responsiveness of it. So I can be working with a young person and immediately become a conduit for them to create the music that they want to create, whatever that is. And that's massively powerful and i think a lot of the criticism often comes from fear or a lack of understanding Um, i've been in a lot of conversations where people have not intentionally but but have music shamed me (laughs) for the fact that i am not in any way shape or form interested in opera or western classical music i've tried it's just not my thing i I, but what i find often is that when i have those conversations with people they start talking about quality yeah and and that irritates me because it's it's a lack of understanding of the depth with which you have to immerse yourself to, uh, to, to gain any mastery over, over music technology. You have to put an equal amount of work into understanding how a recording studio works, how parallel compression works, how EQ works, how the, the music studio is a, a clash of physics and art in equal measure. Uh, and yeah, we can all get quick results really, really quickly that are very basic in the same way I could if I was just gonna learn DCG on a guitar or a 4 4 on a drum kit. But to get mastery, that is a lifelong journey in the same way that being able to play classical music is a 20 year exercise in perfection. They're equally demanding of people's time, energy, and, and intellect.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think often the judgment with music technology are about kind of musicality and then also, as you said, the critical judgment and the reflection. And I guess because you're creating a trusting relationship with that young person you're able to have all sorts of conversations about musicality and reflecting on what you what they're playing and what they're listening and i know that youth music on their podcast recently we talk about hip-hop music education and the challenge of working with young people who want to create music which might not be very positive and the balance Mm -hmm. they have to have between encouraging that young person to Express what they feel and express what their lives are about, but yeah. not glorifying certain attitudes
1: and yeah, absolutely, and we have those situations as well, often, but because the work is predicated on on that idea of, of autonomy, we will always start from a position of you can create whatever music you want that doesn 't mean i 'm not going to challenge you about what you 're saying, you need to be able to justify it, but you, you can 't start a relationship of trust with somebody facing a whole host of challenges where Behaviors are an issue by starting by taking their autonomy away. It just doesn't work. What we consistently see is when we give kids that sense of autonomy and put them through a process where they start to feel competent and reflect on that, that the matter of what they're the subject matter of what they're talking about changes over time. And that happens all the time. There's often, you know, the sense of I'm making this because that's what my mates listen to, or I'm making this because it's I'm going to see how far I can push your boundaries but once you've actually established a relationship and, and start having those conversations from a place of trust where you say well stop let's start writing something about what your experiences were or what your experiences are now or what you wish your experiences to be in the future and then it becomes a really powerful vehicle for self-reflection
0: And you also don't just stop at the kind of end of the 10 weeks, do you? You, You're looking with that young person about how they want to carry on afterwards, aren't you? So there's a legacy there.
1: Yes, within every session. I said, so the music and the participant put together the digital story and they create the music. And that's all about a space where they're having fun doing that. But it's not always smooth sailing, obviously. The the digital story is a positive, pro-biased narrative that we're putting together the musician at the end of that session also has additional time paid uh, whereby they're, they're getting that digital story out to everybody but they're also writing a short report that goes back to the referring professional about what actually happened in the session and parts of that are around this young person's identified that maybe they want to do a level one math uh, and it's about making sure that that support is there from the professionals around the young person we're working with so that when they finish working with us, there's a progression route for them so that we don't just parachute in for 10 weeks. We can't do everything, we can't provide the progression route as well, but what we're trying to do is take, often quite marginalised people, getting them to a point where they're able to survive in a group environment. Because a lot of these kids, again, what tends to happen is we group all the kids with issues uh, together and stick them in a room and watch the fireworks fly because it's a Mm cost-saving element to it, which is ridiculous. So you need to make those kids feel like they've done something out, have some sense of self-worth and resilience first, before you put them in that group work environment. This is almost kind of the, the reason for me doing this. I was, I was, when I was working for an organization called Connections, I was continually having young people put in my caseload who'd just come out of prison or Youth offending Institute, and people were saying, right, great, well, we'll stick you in a college for you to start doing a bunch of uh i've made level one qualifications and invariably it just wouldn't work because their coping mechanisms <laughs> won't fit into that environment um, unless you address how they feel about themselves first you need to make them feel that they've got something to offer so yeah it, i can't understand how, how important it is yeah to, to impact on how people feel about themselves first it's the number one thing to work on and, and, and i think music is the perfect conduit for that
0: and actually picking up on that autonomy, competency, and relatedness. It's interesting that we don't talk more about those three things in relation to well-being.
1: You hear echoes of it across all sorts of different conversations. And it's a psychological theory that has remained fairly siloed, I think, but it's starting to break out. It's being used within business organisations, being used in education, sports sciences. It is starting to spread. I'm just about to, I've just written a paper with Phil Mullen about self-determination theory, the history of that within community music and and using noise fiction as a self-determination informed Mm -hmm. intervention that we're going to go and present at their international conference uh, next week actually oh, in, uh, in holland so it, it, it is starting to happen it hasn't been there hasn't been a massive uptake within community music or in formal music approaches or formal music approaches but the more this is a, as a model as ends with which to look at what we're doing it just makes so much sense really. yeah you, when you start when you start listening out for it and, and you start to talk to people about their organizations whatever those organizations might be doing you can pick out the elements
0: Mm, interesting so that was leading on to me asking about your evaluation and i'm interested in knowing are those three things how are they linked with your evaluation and do you want to just sort of tell me a little bit more about how you evaluate to mention that you've got a a master of education now um, looking at stakeholder perceptions of noise solutions practices and and give some really Uh really robust evidence of the impact you've made and also you've had a cabinet office impact readiness fund report as well prior to that so you've got some really strong reports and your ongoing evaluation process is really interesting so yeah tell me a bit about that
1: sure so yeah yeah nobody's more surprised that i've got a master's in education than my mother i think that's the first thing to say (laughs) My, my own personal um, education experiences were pretty negative in that I didn't really go. So yeah, so to end up with the, with the, the Master of Education has been an interesting uh, personal journey. Um, so, so I was just going to pick up
0: on that because actually when I sort of said why does this work, is this work so important to you at the very beginning, I was kind of hoping you'd say something about that, you know, okay. you really get these young people because you've had slightly similar experiences, is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't as severe as as some of these. I I made personal choices not to engage with my school because they were a bit rubbish. But I did find myself in a a post-industrial Midlands town with no qualifications. And the only social capital I had, the only thing that gave me any sense of self-worth was the fact that in lunchtimes in the music block, people told me I was good at hitting things. (laughs) So Mm. drums mainly. And so that was the thing that I clung to, the thing that gave me a sense of identity. So yeah, that, that sense of being made within an education system to, to feel valued or to not be, yeah, well, no, just that, just not valued within that education system, but then to leverage that, what you were good at, as a force for, for increasing your sense of social capital to the point now where I've traversed from, from that position to education masters uh, at the other end, Yeah, that journey has been made possible because of music. Yeah. But not not in the traditional sense, but yeah.
0: Yeah, no, not at all. And so coming back to the evaluation, those two reports have really strongly kind of evidence that the model that you have does make a difference and the the words statistically significant are often bandied Ah, about (laughs) and so somebody had actually asked about that so i wonder if i start off well if you want to start off by telling me about your evaluation model and then somebody else sure
1: so i mean the first thing to say is there are no perfect ways to measure this stuff and anybody that tells you that there is is selling snake oil (laughs) having said that so the theory, self-determination theory, states that if we create a space where we focus on autonomy, competency and relatedness, we should impact on well-being. So what we then need to look for is a tool that measures well-being, okay? uh, but does it in a, in a trusted, validated way. So I did quite a lot of searching around, and the tool that we decided to settle on was a tool called the Warwick and Edinburgh Well-Being Scale, which is fairly well used and becoming more well used and there's a number of reasons why i think this tool is really applicable Uh, the first is that the way it's phrased uh, is is quite positive i've read a whole bunch of scales that are really medicalized and problematized and actually make you feel worse just from doing them which i'm sure is not the intention Um, whereas these questions are very very positive Um, they are questions that are designed to elicit a subjective reflection on two aspects of well-being so the first one of those is hedonic well-being which is that piece around being uh satisfied in the moment immediate gratification so the kid who's just learned to play the piano he's feeling really really great because he's achieved that thing really really quickly But the second element is uh, eudaimonic well-being. Eudaimonia is Greek for life satisfaction. So that plays back to that piece around well-being of how we exist within our communities and how we perceive ourselves to be functioning. So those are the two elements from academic theoretical backgrounds that we know make up well-being. And the the questions within the uh, Work in Edinburgh Well-Being Scale are designed to elicit responses around those. The questionnaire uses a, a Leichhardt scale response. So there are four answers for every question, none of the time, rarely, some of the time, often, all the time. And what we can do is attribute a value to each of those answers. So at the end of the questionnaire, we've got a subjective reflection that we can sum the score of that gives us a a concrete number. Because this scale was developed by the NHS and developed by Edinburgh universities, there's been a lot of peer reviewed work on the accuracy of it. And also there's been a lot of use of it. And what that means is the sample size at which we're looking at this, this, uh, this questionnaire being used is uh, something like 60,000 people plus. So it's been used by the NHS, Ipsos Mori, the UK government. So if we've got a sample size of 60,000 people, we can then test the accuracy of the answers by statistically analysing it. So all of that work's been done. So that the scale is validated as being reasonably very accurate, depending on what you read, Um, but the fact that it's done at that scale of 60,000 people means that there's an average well-being score that Joe or Jane, UK citizen, place themselves at. And if we've got an average UK well-being score, then we've got something we can compare what we're doing against, rather than making up our own scale. Okay, so that's a really useful thing to have. I see lots of organisations making up their own scales, and, and I find that quite frustrating. Mm. it doesn't really really doesn't build an evidence base what we've done is build the collection of these questionnaires and the analysis into the platform that we've built so it's all recorded analyzed live and that's done within the sessions that's done at the first session and done at the end session journey traveled what what it isn't and i think this is really important to stress is it's not an individual diagnostic tool for measuring somebody's changing well-being what it is is a population level steer on how the organization is doing it needs to be u- used at scale rather than being able to to say johnny's increased three points
0: oh that's interesting um, okay yeah sorry, sorry simon i'm just thinking so how does that play out with commissioners of services or
1: so that, i think there's there's a, there's a couple of things here so different people react differently to different types of evidence that you present them with the point of the platform is that we've got equal amounts of this quantitative data. And because we've collected a lot of it, we can look at how the organization is performing, say, demographically. So we can look at 13 to 16-year-olds from a certain contract and say, these are the impacts over that population where we saw a meaningful impact on well-being. But the numbers that's thats interesting to have that information at your fingertips, then some commissioners will, will respond really, really positive to that. But other commissioners will respond really, really well to the story data. So we can say, right, here's this population data saying that we're statistically significant, which I'll explain in a minute, in impacting on well-being. If we dive into some of the data points and those data points are otherwise known as people (laughs) and and actually actually show you the story that they have told from their perspective with the co-production of the family and the professional key workers, that as a broad evidence base is much more convincing than just singularly quantitative data or just singularly qualitative data
0: i really like that i think that makes so much sense that you've got the kind of organizational you know large-scale data that's giving evidence that your approach works and then for the rest of it you just use the qualitative
1: data the the thing that's unusual or one of the things that's unusual about that is that 99 percent of organizations i look at are trying to retrospectively fit digital impact solutions onto existing work Mm. which doesn't doesn't work very well this has been always been designed to be digital so the digital story isn't built by us it's, it's built by the participant and their family with the musician in the session the the, the collection of the impact data is built in to the, the first session and the last session the only thing that the young person we're working with is aware of is seven questions around well-being at the beginning and seven questions at the end Everything else, equal amounts of qualitative and quantitative data build themselves. And then from the, the research masters that I did, we've built in all of the statistical analysis so we, we can make an informed presentation of the data in the language that commissioners understand around statistical significance or range of change. So, just a sort of a really, really quick pricey of statistical significance. It's just a really posh way of saying, if, if I feed somebody into this process, what's the confidence level, the probability that when they come out the other end, that there's going to be an improvement? That's it. That's, that's quite a simple description, but that's what we're looking at. What, what having the, all this data at our fingertips enables us to do is to, to drill down about where the organization is most successful. We're moving from a position of impact capture to impact management. We can say, for instance, if I'm in a meeting with a commissioner who has a finite amount of resources, I can very confidently say, If you want to invest those resources in the most targeted way, our data tells us that we are most impactful with 16 to 24 year olds. Actually, uh, we're twice as impactful on the impacting on the well-being of young women than we are with young men. So our sweet spot is 16 to 24 year old young women. That's where you should be placing any resource you want to give us.
0: Ah, okay. And then where does that uh, confidence, that sort of statistical significance, where has that come from? Sorry if that sounds a stupid question, but has that come from the fact that the cabinet office looked into this and...
1: No, no, no. Statistical analysis is used across a whole range of sectors. It's analysis of, of figures. These are very, very common mathematical tools that are used just to, to get a steer on, on whether something's working or not. We just happen to have applied them within the context of this start and end data supplied by this tool that the NHS have developed.
0: Ah right okay and then just a really quick practical question. How do you collect that information? How do you ask the young people those questions? Is it verbally is it on a little app or something or
1: so again it's built within the platform and there's a questionnaire on there it's just a tick box exercise so they can be left to do it on their own or if they want some help with it we can help with that and these things can all be picked apart really really easily by people who get obsessed by statistical analysis and sociological approaches to collect, collecting evidence. But all I'm trying to do is get a steer for the organisation as a whole on how well it's performing.
0: Yeah.
1: One of the things that was really interesting about the time I spent in the academic, or more immersed in the academic world, was that I was finding myself in rooms with people who'd been there for 20 years arguing about the perfect way to do something and never actually doing anything. So... And I'm not saying that work's not important. It is, obviously. But I'm a practitioner. I, I want practical answers to how I can solve problems yeah. for the work that we're doing. And, and so that's how we've applied that work.
0: Absolutely. I should say that the statistically significant question came from Plymouth Music Zone. Another question that was on, on social media is Nell Farrelly, who's an evaluation expert, asked... I'm interested in data collection implications and um, particularly data sharing arrangements of working on NHS commissioned work. Have you encountered issues which have been difficult to navigate?
1: No, is the short answer. Ah. I think because we have such a good grasp uh, and an ability to present the data and an understanding of why we think that data works. We're able to control the narrative. I've been quite surprised at conversations I've I've had with commissioners and the amount of times they've said, well, this is far more sophisticated than what we're used to seeing. We're used to just getting a few qualitative case studies. Um, And
0: is that from the arts or just generally from other interventions as well?
1: Generally, because we we, we can control that narrative. And obviously, this is with the full caveat that all of our policies uh, are in place we 've thought really, really carefully about the impact and the ethics of of what we do and the share the platform is is very, very specific about who it will let see files and only certain URL addresses will enable you to play any videos that we create. There's a whole bunch of stuff behind the scenes that we've done to reassure quite risk-averse organisations that the work is safe. Um, So with all that in mind, we haven't actually had any issues, really, because it it hasn't really, really come up. We get the consent of the the commissioning organisation to do the work, and every time a young person logs in, there's a small splash screen saying, are you happy for us to do this? The parents are aware of what's going on. Um, so yeah no it hasn't just hasn't been an issue
0: okay that's really interesting moving on i wanted to come on to commissioners in terms of communications and sales i guess so you're not a charity and you only work on commissions is that right
1: well it's yeah so we haven't used any grant funding for any of the delivery work that we've done in the ah, last yeah. 10 years but it's been it's been a social it's a social enterprise but yeah 100 percent of any surplus or profit goes back into the organization.
0: So you're kind of completely reliant on marketing to commissioners or rather, you know, having a good relationship, which is more important with commissioners. And I suppose the question on probably some listeners' minds is, you know, how did you even begin to secure those commissions? It's particularly in the early days, you know?
1: Yeah, you just have to find the right person to to take a punt on you. So in the early days, I'd already spent uh, a considerable number of years working within this environment. So I, I did have some contacts and that definitely helped but what was more impactful was the ability to show what we were doing was working. So I had some very good advice right at the beginning which was from somebody who's, who's been around social enterprises for years and that, that piece of advice was to just start capturing something as soon as you can because once you get that first person to take a pump and you capture it that gives you more leverage for the next person and it just builds. Yeah, it's relationships. And it's also about solving somebody's problem to an extent to which they're prepared to pay you for it.
0: Absolutely. Classic marketing, classic kind of um, advocacy as well. So how many young people do you, I'm just interested in the scale of your organisation sure. before I go on to the next question, which is about scaling up, is how many young people do you reach and kind of what is the average cost and, and in a sense, the okay. non-investment, if you're okay to sure. answer
1: that yeah yeah absolutely yeah i 'm very keen on, on being quite transparent about all this stuff people don 't share this stuff enough yeah. um, so yes, so we are currently delivering about a hundred one to one targeted sessions a month, maybe about one hundred and twenty actually this month uh, yeah we 've just had a chunk of funding from uh, central government uh, to work on uh, attendance uh, within the Ipswich opportunity area. Each of those places costs uh, no, 1827 pounds and 50 pence. It's costed out as full recovery. Um, so that covers the musician's time, the development of the platform, the upkeep of the platform. Sometimes we'll use those digital stories to collate evidence for arts awards. It covers all of that work. It's a skinny model some people I say that to and they say that's incredibly expensive and other people I speak to say well that's incredibly cheap it, yeah it, some of that money also includes um higher studios as well so because yeah I, I'm not sure if I said at the beginning that the first five weeks at home and the second five weeks within a recording studio uh, uh, as well it, it's it's about the same price as a plumber right <laughs> it's,
0: yeah.
1: we've just done an eight month piece of work with a cambridge pharma data company who put a team of five people on a social return on investment project looking at the work we gave them a very strict brief that we wanted it to be really really tight and to only claim anything that we could actually prove so we were very very clear that it had to be attributable and that the projection couldn't be way into the future at all, I think it's just based on a year. So what we found, the social return investment figure was £2.20 for every pound spent. So that is not taking into account four, maybe five young people in the last three or four months who have been diverted from either admission to acute wards uh, within CAMs where the NHS placed that cost at something like £60,000 a year. Um, so we're not counting that stuff. We, we could claim it, but we're not because it's something that didn't happen. So yeah, it it's, doesn't sound like a huge figure. I mean, it's 120% return, so you know, it's, not, it's not too bad. Uh, and one of the things we actually want to do as well, so we've, within the platform, we're going to build that cost projection saving stuff into the platform as well. So you've got these digital stories, population wellbeing level, and potential cost savings again it's not a perfect exact science but it's there as a steer
0: yeah and we've got to start somewhere it's such an interesting model and it's it's a model that i think you know other organizations will be really really interested in and so that leads me on to a question from lucy stone a fundraiser who asks what your plans for the future and i know you and i have talked about whether you have plans for scaling up
1: I think the current climate for, for organizations that are predominantly funded by either education or local authority or NHS is incredibly difficult and getting harder. So that commissioning landscape is, is really, really tough. I think we're okay because we are able to control this narrative around the impact of what we're doing. I think that places us in, in a very strong position, but it's still not plain sailing. So what we would like to do is to actually sidestep that whole commissioning process entirely. The intention is to use the platform as a licensable product so that we can create an independent income stream that anybody who's working with people in a in any kind of mentoring tutoring teaching role where well-being is is a useful metric for their commissioners where it would be useful to capture those journeys and to to leverage that digital story stuff to improve those outcomes and who wants an ability to to measure population level wellbeing scores and possible cost projections. Whenever I go to a meeting and start talking about the ability of the platform to do all this stuff and report pretty much automatically on all of those outcomes, you know, I think that's quite a, a viable product that I think hopefully has national, if not international traction. So the idea is to use that as an income stream I mean, we're also looking at quite a lot of dialogue with national uh, organizations or departments around scaling that way as well. We have an intention to be national over the next four years, and we want to do that in a sort of side by side program whereby we maybe license to some organizations both the training and the platform because I think they come hand in hand. You have to have an understanding of the theoretical underpinning to use the platform effectively. But at the same time, we're going to be sort of carrying on with hopefully organic growth. But yeah, it's absolutely the intention to be national if if not international.
0: Oh, that's really exciting to hear. And so people should get in touch with you if they're interested in potentially licensing your models,
1: especially, especially if they've got some cash. Yes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <absolutely>. <laughs> okay. um, and then finally, can you give us three practical pieces of advice or maybe three calls to action for others working in music education who are listening based on your experiences?
1: The first one I've already mentioned, which is if you're not capturing anything, DART, if you're not measuring it, then you are not able to see where it's not working. (laughs) And you're not going to be able to effectively improve what you're doing. So there's that. Uh, The other question that I think organisations should be asking themselves is why does what we do work? People don't ask themselves that enough. All of the wellbeing work for us and, and all of the methodologies is about our audience it, it, it's not something that can just be retrofitted onto uh, another project so all of the, the the well-being scale data is subjective reflections so that's not going to work within an early year setting or a dementia setting mm-hmm. um, so you you need to think about who your audience is it, it's very very helpful uh, especially in, in a sort of grant environment to be able to control that narrative around impact um, because you're able to, to push back against funders who don't mind this happening, I have to say, when I've had conversations with them. You know, no, our evidence collection is better <laughs> than, than, than what you're actually requiring us to do. Uh, and they will trust you if, if you can set out the argument well. Uh, we spend a lot of time pushing back against uh, education organisations or, or local authority organisations who are making decisions about kids' lives because of systems rather than what would be better for that young person. I would advise more pushing back. The other thing is it doesn't matter how good your theoretical model is, or your evidence base, unless you've got a business model that works. And that seems to stand us in good stead. We had some good news this week in that we were ranked in the top 100 social UK enterprises in performance by NatWest. Those are the kinds of things that are really, really nice in terms of providing social proof Uh, when you're talking to those larger organisations.
0: Congratulations on that. That's absolutely fantastic achievement. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's always great to talk to you and I never have enough time to talk to you. So um, thanks for coming on the show. Um, And I'm sure you've sparked lots of ideas and further conversations among listeners to this show. So if you want to read more about Noise Solution, I'll share the link to their website and their evaluation studies in the show notes. And if you have any questions or anything you'd like to share, do comment online on Twitter or LinkedIn. And of course, do get in touch with Simon. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. And make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and
1: have a great week.